Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Binance Podcast. My name is Weijo. I'm the Chief Financial Officer for Binance. So, what I want to do with this show is to spend time talking to specialists, entrepreneurs, scholars, influencers, basically leading people from a variety of industries. Hopefully, through these conversations, we can share insights on how blockchain is changing not just these different industries, but also in changing the world. Here's a quick disclaimer: all opinions expressed by our host and our guests on this podcast are merely their own opinions. They do not imply any endorsements or opinions of their companies. You should not take these opinions as specific investment advice, as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another、uh, edition of the、uh, Binance Podcast. Today, I have a very, very special guest uh, with us. Uh, we have、uh, Rick McDonald, who is currently the and、uh, who's former,、uh, formerly an executive、uh, secretary of the FATF, and then also currently an executive director at the、uh, ACAMS, which is the Association of Anti Money Laundering Specialists.、Uh, thank you for for being with us, Rick. Uh, he has、uh, Rick has、uh, started off his career as a as a lawyer, but then over the last thirty years, have been、uh, extremely active within the、uh, financial regulatory space,、um, being the leading experts on anti money laundering on a global basis. And then he was instrumental in terms of leading and then growing the FATF、uh, from a membership and、uh, and also in terms of.、Uh, You know,、uh, taking on different initiatives、uh, from two thousand and seven to two thousand and fifteen, the executive secretary or the executive director, I think, of FATF. Well, good morning, Wei. Thank you very much for having me on your show. Yes, I,、yeah. I was the executive secretary of the FATF. Yeah. So we've met a couple of times, and then you know, I know your background. You're a lawyer. You had a legal professional training, right? We would love to learn about how did you evolve from a lawyer to a financial regulator. Well,、uh, life has its strange ups and downs. I guess I, I was working in private practice, and、uh, I was asked to join a national investigation of organised crime, a special inquiry, and、uh, I never left the the crime space. So I moved from prosecution investigation into crime policy, and、uh, my boss,、uh, long ago at the time, Solicitor General,、uh, asked me to、uh, establish. And a regional anti-money laundering group in the Asia Pacific region, which I did, which、mm-hmm. is called, which is called the APG, Asia Pacific、mm-hmm. Group on Money Laundering. And then I, I was asked to go to the UN as head of their global program against money laundering. A lot of policy and legal work in that space. Then the FATF asked me to come and head up the Secretariat in Paris. Yeah, can you give us a little bit of background about FATF? I think it's still a relatively young organization. I think only been around. I think about less than thirty. About thirty. I think it's t- this year is the thirtieth anniversary of the of the organization, right? That's correct.、Uh, I suppose compared to many other international organizations, it's not that old. But thirty years is is a, is a long time. It's it's evolved from <laughs> a handful of、uh, of countries to now having a global network, and I'll explain that if you like uh, of uh, of uh, about two hundred countries, almost universal membership. But it's based on it's based on headquarters in Paris,、uh, with with all of the major countries as members, and then regional、uh, offshoots around the world. There are nine of those, a total of about two hundred. 
And what is their primary role uh, in terms of what they do and who are the members? Like, or, or rather, what type of, uh, gov- are they government entities? Are they as a private entities? Like, how, how does it work? Well, the membership is by government and it's a task force. It's not set up legally as an international body with a legal personality. And that was intentional because it was meant to continue to be a flexible task force and that uh, strength of that continues. But after 30 years, you can say it's de facto permanent. It's not going away. It uh, comprises uh, members from government, uh, usually led by either treasury or finance ministries, uh, justice ministries, state department people. And the purpose is essentially stemming from way back in the 1980s when narco dollars, in other words, money being laundered from narcotics trafficking was becoming a Mm -hmm. big problem. And it's morphed into the recognized international standard setter for all anti-money laundering, terrorist financing and proliferation and financing of weapons of mass destruction as the standard setter. So it sets the international policy rules and it examines countries' performance and compliance with those rules. And from that, each uh, country in the world who is a member of the group, as I mentioned before, they Mm. have then national laws put in place by their own countries and they have uh, regulators looking at how the compliance is going nationally. But the FATF mm-hmm. double checks that on a cycle of country examinations. So it's kind of, a, you know, I'll put it in a layman terms, it's kind of like an organization that oversees, international organization, uh, task force per se, that oversees each individual countries. I would say monetary or banking regulations or money related regulations to make sure that they follow these international standards that get set by the group. That's a very fair and, summary, yes. And the couple of things that, that, that I found really interesting in your background is that you started off, I think, in Australia, right? And then you were pretty, uh, I think you were very active in terms of building up the regional task force in the APAC region. And then, and I would imagine in the early days, even more so today, you know, the regional activities and focuses are very different, right? How has that evolved uh, since you've been working in this space? Well, there are, there are differences and there are similarities. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of crime, criminals are, how should I say, they're as inventive uh, in one region as they are in another. But in a more interconnected world these days and the capacity to move uh, funds and money and value so quickly, there is a lot of commonality. So essentially, yes, there are regional differences, what types of crimes, where, the way in which the justice agencies are set up and their capacity. So there's those kinds of implementation and enforcement differences. But frankly, I would say these days that uh, the major types of crime that uh, originate proceeds of crime are pretty much the same all over the world, whether it be drugs, white collar crime, fraud, embezzlement, cyber, all of those things are are fairly prevalent. So the purpose uh, and the common standards of the FATF and the common examination standards of the countries shows a lot of similarity in terms of crimes. Yeah, so I think that was one of the points I was trying to get at is that I think maybe in the early days, there are regional differences. They are converging per se, so that the rules have become much more applicable on a global basis with less, I would say, less differentiation amongst regional, less regional biases, I guess. Yeah, I think convergence is a good word because that's happening across the board 
mm-hmm. not only because of the smaller world we live in now, but because of greater efficiency, if I can put it that way, of organized criminal groups in particular. Although the standards apply to all crimes and all people who commit proceeds mm-hmm. of crime generating uh, crimes, you can see over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, major international crime groups themselves converging, as I say, a marriage of convenience, depending on what kind of criminality they're expert in. I see. I see. Uh, and this comes back to probably my first uh, interesting question that some of our listeners, what is the, the most interesting case that you come across or the, the biggest impact that you see in some, in some of the cases or the organizations you've, you, you've been involved with or taken down? <laughs> well, that, that ranges across a number of different areas. Uh, I've mm-hmm. done investigations with police uh, task forces and specialist uh, people over the years into, uh, well, I won't name particular uh, groups, yeah. but what might be roughly described as uh, ethnic-related uh, criminal groups, of which there are many, stemming mm-hmm. from certain countries, but now global. Mm-hmm. That's involved... Uh, uh, drug trafficking, as uh, that also sometimes involved uh, different investigations into uh, large-scale fraud, uh, so sometimes in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, range. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think the interesting thing has been uh, the spread of the types of crime, uh, the interconnectedness of, of the criminals uh, in the sense of how professional they can be and the difficulty of getting information to conduct a case and bring it mm-hmm. to prosecution. So in some senses, that problem has become a little less problematic because the capacity to exchange information by government agencies has increased manifold, but mm-hmm. the capacity to hide your money has also increased. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a constant struggle. So for me, personally speaking, um, I've always enjoyed uh, – the, the chase, if you can put it that way, if it's international in particular. Mm-hmm. My closest experience has been watching movies, basically always follow the money. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the way to, 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 cheat, to catch criminals. Um, yeah. And, and go, go, going, back, going back to sort of what you've been doing since, uh, you, uh, since you left FDF, you're currently involved with an organization that I, I don't think – um, people uh, not in your sector, people not in the, uh, I think the banking and financial sector are that familiar, which is the Association for Anti-Money Laundering Specialists or uh, ACAMS. Can, can you tell us a little bit, tell me a little bit about ACAMS? Yes, sure. Happy to. Well, ACAMS uh, stands for the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the certified is the uh, important bit, as, as is the association mm-hmm. word, because mm-hmm. mostly uh, the people who are members are compliance officers in financial or non-financial institutions who have responsibilities under law to report suspicious transactions and conduct mm-hmm. risk assessments of, of clients, customer due diligence and all of that. So at the moment, we have approximately 72,000 members globally, and that's mm-hmm. growing growing very rapidly. I would expect that to get up to 100,000 in the next uh, year or two. Um, And what ACAMS does is to provide uh, itself as an association. So even though it is a company, it is comprised of people who are uh, working with the same type of uh, backgrounds 
and they have a, a networking capacity as through their membership. So in other words, it's, it's a real association of members who have a sense of duty in this area. Secondly, mm -hmm. uh, it provides certification and training. Certification mm -hmm. meaning if you get what we call a CAMS uh, certificate, certificate, uh, certificate of anti-money laundering specialization, then that uh, is something that sets you apart in this space from someone who uh, does not have that qualification. In other words, you can market yourself uh, and mm -hmm. to get promotion more quickly and easily. So it does provide a level of expertise as well as uh, the uh, association and networking. And we have a lot of publications. We also have podcasts. Hopefully we could have you on uh, one of our shows one of these days to mm -hmm. uh, spread the word in terms to. of finance. Uh, so it is, it is a very growing market. I think one way of putting it is I've seen around the world and we have, we have a membership in about 65 countries now. Um, people proudly wear their little gold badge which says CAMS on it certified mm -hmm. money laundering specialists. I've even seen this in Kabul in Afghanistan where oh, wow. compliance officers do proudly wear this badge of uh, certification. So it's a good organization because it, it spreads, I should say, or covers both uh, the legal requirements, but also the sense of, uh, of family, if you like, as between people who have the same job to do. And this is not an easy one being a compliance officer in this space. Yeah, because I think most of the, the members work within some kind of, kind of capacity within financial organizations, right? And then within uh, my experience, I worked at a, you know, at an investment bank for about five years. My experience is that compliance is, is, is there's always a challenge, I think, between the, the front office and compliance, which gets relegated, I think, to the, to the back office and growing the business versus sort of like, I would say caretaking the business in terms of managing the risk that has to do with a lot of times when you are dealing with, um, with money. Yes, you're right. And that's what I was hinting at before. Maybe I should be a little bit more blunt and say there's always tension between sales, which is uh, profit making and compliance, which uh, is costly. But the way we look at it is that, yes, you have to obey the law, but it's an insurance policy. It's an investment in not going the wrong way and eventually costing your company more than if you didn't have it. Yeah. Or well, one of the books that I read is The Billion Dollar Whale. I'm not sure if you follow it, the one IMDB incidents as well, because that's quite significant in terms of its coverage in Asia, uh, more so, and especially in Singapore and in Southeast Asia in terms of the impact it has had and on the different people and the groups and organizations it's impacted. It's just that one of the characters involved in there was actually an executive director of mine, uh, this Tim Leisner, when I started off my career as an analyst in Goldman. And then he was the central character in the one IMDb saga. And I just sort of like looking at it, it's just like, man, those guys like, those guys put money before, uh, before what is right <laughs> and blindly followed uh, the money in that situation. Well, you know, even though I've been doing this for a very long time, uh, mm -hmm. I've never become jaded with the ingenuity of, of how greed drives some people. Mm-hmm. So many, many, many different mechanisms. And you have to admire, if I can say this uh, as a former prosecutor, perversely, you have to admire the ingenuity of how people not only break the law, but how mm -hmm. they hide their money and you know, convert it into usable, uh, hidden. Well, 
in that case, I don't think they hit it at all. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty much, <laughs> there's no hiding there. <laughs> yeah, there is no hiding in that situation. <laughs> um, and I think that take that. This is where the convergence of, uh, of, of, how should I say, the people's voice sometimes rela- correlates to, uh, to the reality of problems, because in that mm-hmm. case, at least the, the people of uh, Malaysia chose to change the government. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think maybe 10, 20 years ago, before the internet, before you have transparency, and, and, and uh, before, I guess before you have Instagram and, uh, and Facebook, people can spend their ill-gotten gains in other regions <laughs> and not be noticed. <laughs> and that, I, that, that doesn't really exist, I think, nowadays. So it makes it much harder. <laughs> it does, but you'd, you'd be surprised. I mean, especially in, in new products coming up, mm-hmm. in, in, including, uh, you know, virtual assets, as you mm-hmm. may uh, be much more familiar with from an operational mm-hmm. point of view than I am. Th- this is an area where there's uh, uh, a lot of vulnerability potentially, and that's mm-hmm. why the rules have to apply to the new world of digital, mm-hmm. as well as the, the old world of cash. For sure. And, and that takes us to the next sort of next segment. What do you see as the biggest challenges facing, not necessarily, um, I would say, uh, the, the industry, but actually anti-money laundering professionals today? Because I think as sort of an executive director of your organization, you have to be an advocate for, the, for your members, right? Because I think they are, they are dealing with challenges that probably didn't exist, you know, five years ago or even. Right. Yes, exactly. And, and some that, you know, are popping up on almost a, a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the, the biggest challenges, at least in terms of financial crime generally, not just money laundering, is uh, the use of cyber to attack systems. I mean, people, the man in the street might be familiar with, uh, you know, identity fraud and, and, and theft from their, their accounts. Uh, but that equally applies to organizations and banking institutions. We've seen, for example, over the last few years, several banks who've been hit uh, and money gone instantaneously in, in very devious and clever ways. So I think one of the big, biggest challenges is that uh, uh, how to keep your IT systems up to speed to protect from, from not just hacking, but uh, cyber theft and identity theft. So that's one of the biggest areas I see growing. And, and do you see, uh, uh, like, because like, like, I think if, if that's the case, then, then I think education would be a big part of that process, right? Because it's not just um, organizations protecting themselves, it's individuals uh, have to protect themselves as well, like individuals. Because I know one of the biggest things we face at Binance is that um, a lot of the the hacks and the uh, and the and the frauds happen on an individual basis, um, because of uh, the ability for perpetrators to uh, find weaknesses in behavior habits and also in you know sometimes just in in the telco networks. Yes, that that's right. I I think uh, I don't know if anyone's actually done a survey. Perhaps they should if they can find the data to see how many people in the world have been hacked individually. I think it'll run into millions myself. Uh, but the, I think on the other side of the coin, um, the, the capacity and capability of individual criminals and more so organized criminals, which is becoming more and more the case, I believe, who have a capacity to attack 
individuals and institutions with a, a growing level of skill. So I think that, yes, individuals are, are hacked, um, but who's doing that? It's not necessarily one individual criminal to another innocent party. It's an organized system of, of hacking and, and theft. And your firewalls and other protections have to be up to, up to speed. So coming back to your question, yes, education uh, and uh, ensuring that the systems are as protected as possible is, is another, how should I put it, uh, another niche growth area for professionals in terms of, of this, this area. Yeah. Um, like just for example, um, you know, I, I, do, I don't want to talk about Binance again, but I think for us, we face a countless amount, a number of attempts uh, at us. Uh, and I think that's probably true for all financial, you know, related organizations, especially in our industry where the assets are digital assets. They're not really physical assets. So the ability to, uh, to get access, to take ownership and then move is much, uh, the velocity of that is much faster than I think in, in the traditional space. So, um, so at least for us, we take, you know, uh, the, the sense of security that we put into it is not, is, is more than just sort of, I would say online security. There's a huge element of offline security that we take into account as well, which, which kind of reminds me of like, yep, go ahead. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Uh, it reminds me of early days of like when uh, of uh, when gold were first stored in uh, in, in banks. <laughs> so so the physical safety of of that is is actually becoming more important again. <laughs> well, absolutely, the hardware yeah. and, and the software, exactly, yeah. and that's why uh, digital assets and and virtual asset service providers are now uh, uh, one of the newest but most important areas for how do you effectively not only protect yourself but how does how does how do the authorities try to ensure that in a space that's moving so rapidly and does have an element of anonymity attached to the transactions how do they cope with that how do how do the uh, asset uh, service providers comply what are they required to do this is a space that's uh, very new in terms of regulatory compliance and but one that's highly important because in the old days we can cut that it was mm -hmm. not so hard you could mm -hmm. find a criminal you could find the assets uh, tangibly now mm -hmm. you have to have uh, detectives uh, who in terms of investigations do it very differently but you mm -hmm. have to have systems in place where you can actually detect uh, where money is coming from and going mm -hmm. to and di digitally that's much more difficult in many ways with with blockchain, of course, you can get uh, immutability of the transactions, but what do you do about actually knowing who the people are who were uh, involved in the transaction from beginning to end? That That's one of mm -hmm. the biggest issues. Yeah, I think that brings us to my next question is, I think with regards to both sort of the, the digital domain versus the physical domain, right? Like one of the things that, um, you know, the biggest challenges for people in our industry is actually opening oh, the opening of bank accounts, right? Because with it, with traditional bank account opening, you always need a proof of address. 
<laughs> for for someone for someone who doesn't really have an electric bill or don't really have a gas bill, it's 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 actually challenging sometimes to open bank accounts. Whereas I think, uh, uh, and and uh, and I think, whereas I think for 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 that, it's 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 kind of like for me at least, I feel like a little bit antiquated whenever I get to, I have to whenever I get to a proof of address kind of a, of a thing. Um, you know, it'll sometimes it'll just happen to be maybe my parents' address, where I had an you know, or I at least have an address. It's like, like, do you, like, how how do you see that problem, or how do you see that? Do you see that being evolved? Because knowing where a person resides is very different, right? Versus whereas I think for us, um, at least for for financial institutions where people log in, we know your IP history. Right. So for one of the things that that we do track is that if you historically been using these four or five IP addresses and all of a sudden a random IP address pops up, you know, we're going to warn you, be like, is this you? Right. Because I think that's one of the advantages, I think, of of of, like you know, your digital ID or what part of your digital domain. Right. Versus sort of like your physical domain. Yes, indeed, there there is there is a, a big difference, but then also a lot of similarity. I mean, if mm-hmm. it depends on on how reliable uh, your identification pr- processes are. I mean, mm-hmm. companies providing virtual assets or as an exchange or whatever, um, how reliable uh, is your identification of the of the parties involved? Uh, mm-hmm. And that requires a lot of checking. It also requires, I think, uh, a lot of um, of risk analysis because uh, risk is also a requirement of the international standards. So maybe mm-hmm. if I back up for a minute and say that all of the standards that apply to, you know, can I, can I call it the analog world? Uh, as Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> um, are now required since, uh, since this year uh, mm-hmm. to be applied to the digital world. So for example, FATF standards, they call them recommendations, but they're standards. Mm -hmm. Recommendation 10 is about customer due diligence, identifying uh, who your client or customer is. And that rule uh, applies now also to the digital space. Some in the industry say that's really, really difficult because you might have very, very small uh, virtual asset service providers who deal uh, very rapidly with uh, a non-identifiable group of mm-hmm. people sometimes, and the risk is high. What do you do then? Don't don't bank. Don't uh, uh, use. Don't take them on board. <clears throat> um, others say that yes, as you just mentioned, the capacity to identify uh, mm-hmm. is not as hard as it might first seem. Mm-hmm. I think that the jury is still out on this. The FATF has basically said that they're not going to arbitrate uh, as to which products and people should be covered, that it's, it's being left to uh, the industry to uh, meet the standards, which are the same for the traditional finance industry. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a, a one-year, how should I call it, a breaking-in period from June this year until mm-hmm. June next year to see how this is working. So I think the, <clears throat> the onus at the moment is on, on the industry uh, in, in, the space, uh, in the digital space to mm-hmm. come up with mechan- technical ways in which they can meet those standards. And the basic one is customer due diligence, as you've just said. Mm-hmm. So 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm relatively confident, but not 100% that that can be done in in a in a uh, comprehensive fashion. Yeah, um, because the how do you want to put it? Because there's a, there's two layers to it, right? Like you have one layer which is uh, uh, customer information, right? It's just sort of like some users uh, you, you users go. Uh, People come into cryptocurrency uh, because of the certain level of anonymity, right? That that they can't get involved, and then I think we do see criminals sort of taking advantage of that, and then using you know even some of the early adopters of Bitcoin or you know criminal elements. But but what you do get within blockchain is the immutability of transactions and the transparency of the transactions, so that um, all the transactions are recorded, right? And then there is an address, right, or a transaction history that's immutable uh, on the blockchain that's recorded, and the individuals or whoever's behind that, as long as you can track sort of the IP or, and then you can basically get to the identification. So I think so. I, so I do think something along those lines, right? Like for example, at Binance, we work with various uh, what we call on-chain due diligence organizations, like Chain Analysis, CypherTrace, CoinFirm, that actually do perform these kind of studies. Because at the end of the day, it's the database. It's a it's a database that they start collecting, right? That's a combination of IP addresses and uh, and uh, and blockchain addresses, and they sort of pull them together. So so I do think. Um, if the industry can sort of work together with these third parties to pull our addresses together, like even for, for, for Binance, we have at least our own internal database that we share with some of our peers uh, uh, for known hackers, known criminal elements, and known uh, uh, that, that come and do bad stuff on our site that we've, that we've been able to successfully block. So we actually kind of share that. Uh, uh, we, we want to share that on an, ind- on, on an industry basis. So, um, so I think a lot of it, a lot of the, the deep down elements of it is actually, the, the, a lot of the goals are the same, I think. It's just basically to keep criminals off of our platforms. <laughs> and uh, it's just... I'm glad to hear that because, uh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> what, I, what I see happening uh, to a degree, hopefully an increasing one, is along the lines of what you were just saying, that a de facto industry volunteered standard of its own to mm-hmm. ensure that compliance is there. And that will help, I think, a lot in relation to what regulators expect to happen. So mm-hmm. uh, the sharing of, um, of information is very important. Uh, in, in the old days, again, with analog type transactions, um, the, the, the compliance officers would do that. And uh, in, in this space, I, I'm personally not sure how much of that information can be uh, exchanged, but if you keep a lookout for suspicious transactions uh, and you you alert your your competitors for the common goal of keeping the industry clean, I think that's a, a really important objective. Yeah, then th- th- I'll ask one last question. Uh, like, speak from your experience. How did you get different countries and different banks to start talking to each other? I think that's the biggest part because you're trying to compete with each other on a daily basis, right? Like, how is is <laughs> how did you get them to start talking to each other? That that would be something that because uh, 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 I think for for example, right now we're we're doing something where the compliance officers for the different exchanges, you know, are in a chat group or or, or in, in 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 conversations, right? And then there is certain level of knowledge share, but at the end of the day, they're still your competitors, right? Like, how do you get them to talk to each other? 
Yeah, well, trust is a, a huge element of that, uh-huh. as, in, as in life in general. Uh, uh-huh. How far do you go or should go or can go under the law or in, in, in relation to the, the competition with, uh, you know, your counterparts? Um, I, think it, <clears throat> I think it's something that evolves. Um, I think there are incentives and there are disincentives. Uh, the incentives include... Uh, having an industry that is itself reliable and reputable and in particular parts of industry, uh, the more you build up your reputation as being clean, uh, the better you are competitively is my view. Mm -hmm. The disincentives are that uh, uh, not always, of course, but the chances of detection of uh, people who are not going to try to be compliant are rising and there are serious uh, consequences of that mm-hmm. yeah, certainly in terms of financial sanctions against uh, mm-hmm. industry players as we've seen mm-hmm. in, in the the, uh, the the separate world of of uh, banks in the last several years yeah absolutely uh, so i think building up trust between the big players is essential and maybe mm-hmm. the smaller ones it'll take longer yeah Okay, great. Thank you very much for your time, Rick. Uh, and I uh, really appreciate your time. And then I really appreciate your knowledge and your, uh, and your patience in terms of uh, sharing uh, your, uh, your, you know, uh, your career's work with us. And then we look forward, and I look forward to uh, joining uh, uh, ACAM's uh, podcast in the future. Well, thank you very much, Wei, and to your audience. And I look forward to that as well. And good luck with the hard job of compliance in this space but the you know the the ingenuity of technology people in this space is, is beyond my comprehension sometimes so i have confidence thanks rick bye-bye thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this interview as as much as i did if you like this show please share this episode on twitter facebook telegram WeChat, or any other social media platforms please don't forget to subscribe to the binance podcast and see you next time